looking for the King of Podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from Wee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. (laughs) Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while Sincel Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open.
the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Far thing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Hi, this is John Arezzi, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. So, I guess first and foremost, we will start here. ECW Press has released a new book called Matt Memories. I got my handy. I got about 300 of them sitting next to me. There you go. Signing them and mailing them out to people who uh, ordered directly. So, that being said, as you heard right there with 300 books sitting next to him, would be... John Arizzi. John, how are you? I should mention, because we have it officially, we joining us besides John is a fellow New Yorker who has known this guest a long time, Mr. Evan Ginsberg. Hi, everybody. And I just want to say it's John Arezzi. 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 Yeah, or no, John, John Alexander, if you're in Nashville. That's yes. right. I know John since the late fifties, man, like uh, hey. forever. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Didn't we go see Bruno beat Rogers for the title? Weren't we in the audience? I was third row center for Gotch Hackenschmidt. I was the baby in the photo. Kidding. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, I was going to ask further than I do then. Yes. Well, Evan, because I know you've been a lifelong fan. Sometimes you, uh, your stomach churns at things as we were talking before John joined us. Where did you sit for the Abe Lincoln matches? Um, I was at the debates, the the, the Lincoln Douglas debates. Uh, those <laughs> were, those were great. He, they they were good talkers. They were like Billy Graham and uh, John Tolos. Good talkers. Promos. That's oh, right. Jesus Christ. They cut a mean promo. Yeah. Well, John, I know you signed on to do your book in 2019, and it's just coming out now. So, the I'm going to go with the softball question. Why now to tell your story? I'm 64. Uh, I've done a lot of things in life, uh, not only in wrestling, but in country music and baseball. And, you know, there's not too much that you have forward. Um, I think it was a good time to tell the story. 
about a guy with a couple of different identities who kind of had the schizophrenic crazy life and um, Michael Holmes from ECW press uh, liked the pitch I gave him and, and the fact that I had two identities and two different industries and uh, hooked me up with uh, Greg Oliver. And when Greg signed on to uh, the project, it was a go from that point. So, yeah, I mean, it's just really age time. It's like, all right, what else is out there that you can do in the future other than uh, try to live a happy life, I guess. But uh, the time was right for this story to come out now. You mentioned about the country music, and I was actually telling Evan that when I was glancing in the book, because for some odd reason, my parents wanted me to know things like being able to read and write and stuff like that. Yeah, which is scary, but all kidding aside, one of the things that really stood out for me on the music side is back in the 80s, you were working with one of my favorite country female artists in Patty Loveless. Do you uh, still keep in contact with her? I haven't seen Patty since uh, 2014 at the Grand Ole Opry when another ma- uh, artist I managed at the time, Sarah Darling, was playing the Opry and uh, I found out Patty was going to be on that show, so I thought it would be cool to see if Sarah would play, and the opera said yes. But uh, Patty Loveless changed my life. I mean, Patty Loveless uh, changed my entire career direction, and it was a quirk of fate that I met her. Um, I was working for the New York Mets in the minor leagues in Shelby, North Carolina, and that was a job that I, you know, dreamed about to work for the Mets and. I got hired. I got put in the minor leagues. I went out for a beer one night with the general manager of the ball club and cover band takes the stage called straight up at a place called the Stardust Lounge in 1981. And uh, this rock and roll band takes the stage. And this girl with this incredible voice is uh, singing covers of Journey and Pat Benatar and Linda Ronstadt and Journey and so many others. And I was like, what is this girl doing in this club? Because the club was, a when you talk about Southern dive bars or dive bars in general, this was at the top of the list. It was a dry county, which means selling liquor was illegal. So you'd really have to go to a liquor store outside the county or a, a supermarket or whatever. Not supermarkets, didn't even sell beer, but the liquor store. And you bring that alcohol into the club. You check it in like you check your coat. And then you buy it back one by one wow. from the from the people behind the bar. And it was it was like a lot of bikers and it was a seedy club and it's almost like a check your guns at the door type of thing. And I was just fascinated why this girl was in this club. I mean, she was so good. And there were the house bands. So I'd go back every weekend uh, when I wasn't traveling with the team or um, involved. Uh, and I just sit there and watch her. And I got mesmerized. And I finally uh, introduced myself to her and uh, we started talking. And I was like, you you know, you're a star. I mean, what are you doing here? I mean, uh, don't you have a dream to make, the, make, it, make it happen? And, and she basically said, my dream is over. I'm, you know, I'm married now, you know? So uh, her backstory was that she was a teenager in country music. Her brother, Roger, took her to Nashville. I'm listening. <laughs> yes. The backstory was that, you know, she was a teenager in Nashville. She was 14 years old. 
and she was with a singing uh, duo with her brother called the the uh, the Swing and Ramies, and she's got a lot of traction. I mean, she was mentored by uh, a Porter Wagner, big wow. country legend, Dolly Parton. Dolly taught her how to put makeup on, uh, and they were friends. And she was really going to break. I mean, she she got a publishing deal with the Wilburn Brothers, and she was touring. And at the age of seventeen, she met this much older guy who was a drummer in the Wilburn Brothers band, and she married him. And he took her out in Nashville right before she had an opportunity to break big like a Loretta Lynn and uh, took her into the seedy world of rock and roll. And and she had a hard life there. Yeah. I met her at the darkest period of her life. So um, it was, uh, you know, she she could have made it as a teenager, but then she left and she's in this little shitty club. And and uh, I come into her life, the darkest period of her life. and. I convince her that she can really go for it and she really needs to go for it. And before too long, I mean, I uh, eventually quit my job at the Mets and start managing her. And I knew nothing about music. So uh, I took her out of that little club and we started playing some of the bigger cover clubs around the Southeast. And, and uh, that's what kind of got me started with her. But uh, end of the day, I didn't get her her record deal, but what I did for her, I think was put the fire back in her belly and give her a dream back in her heart and eventually her brother took her to nashville and got her a record deal uh, at the end of uh, 1984 early 85 great yeah, i she... once I, I once pitched a 16 year old singer songwriter to a major label she had all the talent in the world and they said to me we're looking for a 13 year old to mold like justin bieber and i was appalled yeah yeah, the music business is crazy, as you know, Evan. I mean, it isn't. It's a nutty business, man. Yeah. Well, so while we're on the topic of music, who do you currently work with? Because I know you're still, you're based out of Nashville currently. Well, I still live in Nashville. I moved there in 2000. I spent uh, 20, 20 years in the music business there. I got out of the music business in 2020 after the pandemic hit. I was uh, at the time, I started a crowdfunding uh, platform called Band Twango with a guy in New York, an old singer that I managed years ago. And uh, pandemic hits, and I was quite frankly aging out anyway, dealing with younger artists. I think that uh, uh, it was a generational thing. I couldn't really relate to the artist anymore. So I really got out of the music business in, in 2020. Uh, when the pandemic slowed our company down and it eventually closed in September, but I got out much earlier in around March of uh, 2020. And I just uh, I put it in the rear view. That was the end of it for me. But uh, I still got a passion for music, obviously. Well, obviously, we have some friends from the Nashville area of the okay. show, such as Phil Vassar and John oh. Barry and a few what? folks like all, that. I know all those guys. It's funny, always exchanging texts and stuff with them. And they got some interesting stories from an artist's perspective. Luckily, the relationship's built more off, oh, you're a musician where we do what we do. You know what I mean? It's There's some uh, a genuine liking of each other, both sides there. But from your perspective, what makes Nashville such a unique town for music besides country? Well, it is Music City. I mean, uh, but the thing is, the whole tradition and history of the town was that very extremely talented people migrated there. 
and there's a migration that takes place to this day. It's just known as, you know, the best songwriters, the best producers. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, it really got its fame and its notoriety during the heyday of country music. But uh, to this day, it's just a place where you could find the very best of, uh, of talent. And uh, a lot of kids come there with dreams in their hearts. Yeah, I know uh, pop singer uh, Tiffany was just saying to us that she was recently in Nashville doing some recording and such yeah, for her good. new music. And, uh, and I met her for lunch a few times. Uh, she's, uh, you know, somebody that uh, that made her mark uh, outside of Nashville in the pop world. But she is I think she has a boutique there, a clothing uh, boutique, a consignment shop. And uh, but, yeah, she's a she's a part of the community. Yeah, it's, you know, everybody I've talked to within the music side of things, everybody says the same thing, even though they're of different genres, which is a testament, I think, to the town and the area. Oh, yeah. But let's jump into the wrestling side of things. Evan, would you like to kick off with a wrestling-related question? Sure. John, I know the uh, WFIA were doing conventions back, in the 70s, but what, were you the first to do quote unquote commercial conventions for the public? Because you were doing it real early. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I was. Uh, I started, the first one was 1990, and uh, I really modeled what I was doing after, you know, the traditional baseball card show. So I was a huge baseball fan and am today. And I always wondered why there wasn't a platform like that for wrestling. I mean, I'd go to baseball card shows and meet the legends and meet the amazing Mets. And I I felt that that was a great business model. And in wrestling, the fans never really had the opportunity to rub elbows with these uh, large and unlike personalities. So that's how the first convention really started in 1990. And I did it annually uh, through uh, 1993. And I did a lot of smaller little appearances and smaller events. But the Week of the Champions really uh, was uh, put the wrestling fans convention on the map and uh, look how large it's become now. I mean, pre pandemic, I hope that things get back to normal and these conventions start uh, up again. But yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I was that guy who uh, rolled the dice and see if it would work. So you're the pioneer of wrestling conventions. Really? The pioneer. Yeah. I guess you yeah, yeah. call me that. I guess yeah, li- Living legend. That That's a good thing. Um, So so I'll never forget, I'll never forget, you brought the original Sheik to one of your conventions, and it was like the fans were almost scared of him, because he had such an aura about him. Tell us about that. That was wild. That, Evan, uh, is one of my fondest memories and one of my biggest regrets. Uh, The biggest regret was that I didn't get a picture taken with him. Oh, okay. Because I, uh, I was one of those who, you know, I was always scared of the Sheik as a fan yeah. growing up. He scared the heck out of me. But uh, in 93, I wanted to do something different and special like I did every convention. What can, what's the angle? What's the hook? And I was like, the Sheik never did one of these things. So I yeah. contacted my dear friend, Kevin Sullivan. And I said, can you ask the Sheik if he'd do my convention? And and he's never did it. So Kevin came back and said he would do it. Uh, so that was kind of great. Uh, and then when he shows up, um, I, because out of all the personalities and all the people that I've known, kayfabe, not kayfabe, 
he was the one that I said, I'm not even going to communicate with the guy. And that was a mistake because I didn't want to lose that suspension of disbelief with him because he was so believable. Oh, yeah. And kept in gimmick through the entire convention. I mean, there's a famous story of him uh, in the hotel lobby at the um, at the at the Ramada at the LaGuardia Airport, uh, chasing people around with the machete. Yes. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine what the people who were there, not at the convention, right, right, right. They, this Arab was like is chasing people around with a machete. Uh, but the payday that I gave him, I gave to his wife Joyce. Um, he kind of winked at me once. That was about it. But um, I wish I would have taken a picture with him. Yeah. What a legend. I'll tell you a funny chic story. Um, he was on a Joe Goodhart show. He wrestled Kevin Sullivan one show and Abdullah on two other shows. So the first time he comes, I'm in the dressing room. He comes into the dressing room. Everybody goes silent, silent. Because again, he had this aura and yeah. people were like, wow, that's the Sheik. And that's very unusual because everybody's jaded in wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, spoke to Jimmy Cornette uh, a couple of days ago and uh, I'll be on his experience podcast this weekend. Uh, and we were talking about that story, the Sheik, and and he was another one who, like when he first met the Sheik, or he was in the same locker room, he didn't want to, he was afraid to go up to him, and, yeah. and actually he had Kevin Sullivan introduce him to the Sheik, and he said by the second time he did a show with the Sheik, that's when he had enough nerve uh, to actually speak to him a little bit. So yeah, that aura not only um, not only spilled over to us as fans and reporters and now historians. But it, it spilled over to the actual uh, performers themselves who uh, he had that aura that I don't think anyone else ever had in the business. Yeah, unbelievable. Jonathan? Well, I was going to say, since we got the sheet going here, our discussion of him, you guys might want to check out. And again, Evan, we were talking about him prior, Mike Lano. And we actually, me and Mike did a conversation with Supermouth Dave Drazen talking about the old Detroit territory and the show they're doing with rocks TV, the series talking about different guys. And I know you guys, I think would appreciate the series that they did with like Bobo so far, Terry Funk, the chic, just to name a few that's come out so far. Yeah. I mean, I've had Dave on my uh, streaming show, uh, pro wrestling spotlight live, which I do on Facebook and YouTube on Saturday. So Dave and Dave, I've known since the seventies, man, I, I met Dave in 1974 at the WFIA convention and we've remained friends over the years. And he was up close and personal for a lot of years with the Sheik in Detroit and did some, you know, the photography and the managing and all the other stuff that Dave did. And now he's got that incredible new platform uh, that fans could watch on, on YouTube. So yeah, Dave knows the Sheik better than most. Yeah. And I know he's helping with a new book that's being written about the Sheik. So exactly. Yes. Brian Solomon. Brian Solomon. Yeah. I talked to Brian and I actually hooked Brian up with uh, in, where I lived in uh, Tennessee at a couple of doors down. My neighbor was a cousin of, uh, of the Sheik. Wow. Family member. I think it was a first cousin. And I introduced uh, Brian to her about any stories that she may be able to recollect about uh, Lansing, Michigan and, and the Sheik. Imagine you're at a barbecue and you pull out a picture of the sheik stabbing somebody in the head. You go, this is my cousin. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. 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 
Well, speaking of some of the old timers, and I say that respectfully, something I thought was cool was that, John, you were the president of the Freddie Blassie fan club, and you had some good interactions with Freddie. Oh, yeah. What a legend. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, Freddie had this mystique about him. And uh, when I started reading the wrestling magazines in 1967, uh, I, I first discovered other territories other than the Northeast and Bruno and the WWWF. And I kept reading about this guy. I mean, the first story I read about Blassie was the night he kicked Bruno in the groin at Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey and caused a riot. Yes. <laughs> and, and then I started reading more about his, uh, his coming back from all the injuries that he had and uh, the kidneys. And, and I mean, he just went through the mill. And, and that what fascinated me even more uh, you know, the biting, the vampire, the, you know, the claim that he killed people in Japan with heart attacks when they were watching him wrestle. So I found him fascinating. And then uh, when I discovered that he was then and later on a baby face, a good guy in L.A. and a bad guy in New York, I just thought he was like the most incredible person ever. So I, I had the idea of starting a fan club. I was 14 years old. And I remember that... Uh, uh, from reading the rest of the magazines, you got to get a signed permission slip. So I said, how do I get Freddie Blassie to sign a permission slip for me? And it was at the Madison Square Garden, December of 1971, uh, where I went to the locker room and I tried to get in. I said, I need Freddie Blassie to sign this. Uh, so I had a big set of grapefruits. as Vince yeah. And the cops looked at me like I was crazy. And one guy, one security guard went in the back with this thing. And a few minutes later, he comes out and it's signed. You know, it was like, I, Fred Blassie, give John Arezzi permission to start a fan club in my honor. That was simple, simple as that. And uh, and then the, the, my friend who I was hanging with was like, he didn't sign that. That cop signed that. So uh, how do you know that's real? So I knew that Jeff Walton had a fan club in California for Freddie uh, for many years before he uh, worked in the office there. So I mailed it to him to ask if it, it was authentic. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a package in the mail with a letter from Jeff and some programs from the Olympic Auditorium and a Freddie Blassie cardboard mask and a letter saying that that is Freddie Blassie's signature. And he did give you permission to start the club. And that's how it started. And I put my first newsletter out. I think it was November 1972. Uh, and it continued on for three years. But uh, Jeff, used, I used to send Jeff uh, copies of the bulletin called King of Men. And I uh, sent him two copies, one for himself and one to pass along to Freddie. And then uh, in early 73, I get a letter from Freddie Blassie uh, saying that he loved the newsletter and he thanked me for doing the club. And he'd like to meet me at Madison Square Garden on wow. March 23rd, 1973, when he was going to face Morales again. Ironically, Andre the Giant's first match at the Garden was that night. And here I am again. I bring the letter Freddie wrote me uh, to the security guards at uh, the dressing room entrance and I'm like Freddie Blassie wants to meet me and once again they take the letter in the back and a couple of minutes later I'm being waved into the back at Madison Square Garden and got to meet Freddie and interview him for the first time and take pictures with him and and uh, and I got to know him he used to send me letters he always that was one thing about him he would keep in touch with me he'd send me a letter a note a postcard from Japan and uh, he really was a tremendous individual and, and so supportive of the club. There you go. My, uh, first, my first match at the Garden was uh, 
Freddie and Nikolai against Bruno and Strongbow, June of 74. 74. What a show that was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valiance and Dean Ho and Tony Gurria. Strong Kobayashi on that show or something? Uh, Bob and Monsoon. Bob and Monsoon, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I got pictures. I was in the front row. There you go. Uh, and and the, got- funniest, the funniest thing, the funniest thing, I walk in there, I had a black and white TV. I'm a kid. I'm like, wow, it's in color. It's in ah. color. Yeah. Very cool, man. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. days. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. But you guys were talking about mystique of folks such as the Sheik. And I brought up Freddie. Would you say he had a similar mystique about him? Because like you said, there are stories of Japan with the people with the heart attacks and the vampire. And, you know, you've heard the stories throughout the years. Yeah, I would think there was a mystique about Blassie. I think Blassie, when it came to a heel, uh, I think he was one of the best heels in the history of the business. Because oh, yeah. he was very believable. And he would, he would uh, as, soon as, he, as soon as he came out of that entrance... I mean, it was almost like a frenzy where the fans would almost surge a little bit because they hated him so much. And then, of course, then he would wrestle Morales or whoever, and the place would be explosive. Uh, So, yeah, there was that mystique. And people were afraid of him because he was so believable, you know, and he had that magic thing, that it. Uh, But also in L.A., when he became a babyface, I mean, he was as beloved as he was hated. He was as beloved in L.A. as he was hated everywhere else. It was crazy. The other side of it was he was glamorous. Yes. He was a good-looking guy. He looked like a star. Every hair was in place. I mean, the guy looked like a star and had charisma. The fashion he, plate, man. The fashion yeah, the plate. fashion plate. The diamond rings and yeah. the gold chains and meticulously dressed and the outfits he wore as a manager. And he always had the sequin jackets on and he was tanned and he was the you know the white-haired blonde and he was just he was amazing larger than life larger than life and a lot of the guys today they have the six-pack of abs and they look but they look like any guy walking down the street lassie looked like a star yes he did and i was gonna actually bring that up evan that you know with and i remember we actually chatted with uh les thatcher earlier in a week with mike and we were actually talking about that, that the current product, you don't have that. It feels like you don't have that it factor where, and the reason I bring that up was because I've been fortunate enough to attend two WrestleManias, nine, 10 years apart. And the first one was in Phoenix for 26, where the headlining match was Taker Michaels. Those guys had that, Oh, I got to, I want to see Taker. I want to see Sean. I want to, where when I came up to New York for 35, it was like, I'm here for the event, but there wasn't that attraction. Oh, I want to see X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Can that be uh, obtained again, you think? Or can people get that mystique back? You can't, you can't buy charisma. Either you have it or you don't. I mean, The Rock had it, and Austin had it, and Bruno, of course. I mean, I, I, could, I could do a laundry list. I don't want to bore everybody, but a lot of the guys today, they look like any guy walking down the street, and, you know, you, you either have it or you don't, and uh, you could either talk or, or, 
you're either a promo guy or you're not. And and some of these guys are not talkers. Well, everything you know? is scripted too, for the most part. So, you know, you don't have that ability to just kind of go with it and you don't, um, you don't, it's all just too, uh, I hate to say vanilla or whatever it is. It's all just scripted and too controlled. I mean, it's just, it's just a different era. I mean, of course there's evolution and everything, but, uh, in pro wrestling, it's become so controlled and so scripted and so, uh, uh, I hate to use the phrase, uh, I'm older now. It's just, to me, it's boring, even though there's a lot of acrobatics and it's not, and, and it stems from no heat with the crowd. I mean, it's all canned. It's not real. It's not authentic heat because the believability or the suspension of disbelief is no longer there. Well, speaking of that, it made me think of something I've been reading a lot the past few days online. And my opinion hasn't changed on a guy, but obviously Peacock has been apparently editing some stuff on the network, a la the Piper Bad News Brown match. And I get it. I get why you want to do that. And especially the other clip it I heard they edit it, rightfully so, Vince using a certain word. That hundred percent understand. But don't you don't we think we can keep stuff in the the product from the older generations? I just and use it as teaching and using it as teachable moments. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, obviously the past is the past, and you know, because of the cancel culture of today you basically can get canceled for what you said 30 years ago, even though it was 30 years ago. Uh, everything's just way over sensitive today. But, uh, you know, th- that was the, the, the idea that Peacock is now going back and is going to take out what they feel is offensive. You know, pro wrestling was always offensive. I so mean, get that genuine heat. From the days of Japanese villains to the Nazi portrayers of uh, villains in the business, it always had that in it. And of course, everything has changed. Culture has changed. Society has changed. Uh, you know, people are, are you know very more mindful of anything they say today, and rightfully so. But you can't revise history. You can learn from history. Hence but what I mean, teachable moment. Able to, you shouldn't censor history. And it's not only happening in wrestling, it happens in every walk of life today. But the fact that Peacock, after giving Vince McMahon a billion dollars over a five-year period to license the content for the network, you're not get, what, are, what, what are they going to do with ECW stuff? <laughs> Is ECW ever going to be seen again on the network? Maybe not. Well, my question would be, as and, and I'm also anti-censorship, <laughs> my, my question would be, who makes these decisions? I mean, is it, is it a right-wing guy in a suit? Is it a left-wing guy who's hypersensitive? Is it an intern who's clueless? Who, who's, who's ultimately saying Piper and Bad News Brown is bad, yeah. but Piper and Gold Dust, which was pretty homophobic, is okay? I mean, who's who's deciding these things? Maybe that'll go too. I, I mean, I, I mean, it's a slippery slope when you just start yeah. saying cut, cut, chop, chop. You, you know, they they can look at Kamala and cut out every match the guy ever did if they're that if oh, they're the, that hypersensitive. I know? mean, the Attitude Era. You know, 
Is the Attitude Era even going to survive because of all of this? I mean, it really is scary to me that they're going back now and to look at all these tapes, all this historic wrestling, and now decide that it's not appropriate for people to see. And, and let me take it a step further. I mean, you're a legit, you know, showbiz guy. I have friends who are professional stand-up comics. They get a gig at a college. It's well-paying. They sign a contract. It specifically says what they can and cannot say. And right. it says we are allowed to pull the plug on you mid-set. This right. is like 1950s right. you know, hey, hysteria. I saw a story today about Jay Leno apologizing for some uh, uh, Asian character that he might have played back on his talk show 20 years ago whatever it was um yeah i mean it's kind of an interesting time period that we're living in it's a time period that uh i never thought i'd live to see what's going on in society today i was sitting at dinner with a noted jazz musician plays all over the world his friend's college-age daughter was totally pro-censorship. Yeah. Why would you make a fat joke? That could hurt somebody's feelings. And I'm like, sometimes a joke is just a joke. Right. You know, my mom was so fat, she, she rolled twice, she was in Canada. Right. You know, it's not fat shaming, it's a stupid joke. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're done as <laughs> a society. Yeah. I mean, we're finished. I mean, there's, uh, there's no, I mean, you know, you shouldn't disparage anyone if it's a serious thing and you shouldn't bully anyone and you shouldn't say anti-Semitic jokes or you shouldn't say you shouldn't be, you know, but when it came to everything over the course of history and the way entertainment was, and uh, it's just, you shouldn't have to revise history. You learn from it. So if today's day and age, I mean, if these are the rules that are set and you can't say this or that, Going forward, I mean, that's the way society is today. But when you go back and you start altering history, that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because I, wouldn't it be, and it was talked about there, like Evan said, with the comedians going to a gig or if I'm buying the rights to the WWE Network and their library to show on my streaming, would you know what you're buying before you sign those deals? Probably not. You probably don't know. You know, all they saw, and I see, I see the Peacock deal as uh, as a, a smart investment uh, for uh, NBC Universal because they're literally getting a streaming network, and even though they're not own, they don't own, they don't own the content. They're licensing it. That they're getting millions of new eyeballs onto that platform. And if you want to see the wrestling, you're going to be there for $4.99 a month or $9.99 a month without commercials. But they're getting an immediate infusion of, of millions of new eyeballs who are coming in from the WWE side. WWE makes it because they're getting a billion dollars. And now the fans who have been try, uh, tried and true wrestling fans and enthusiasts for years are now going to have watered down content that they're not going to be able to enjoy and there's going to be a lot of stuff on that uh, new streaming platform at Peacock that fans will never get to see again. And that's the sad part of it. And I also think in general with censorship, it just, 
<laughs> there's so many different levels to it. They say 63% of Americans are scared to speak their mind on social media because yeah. people will attack them, jump on them, me yeah, too yeah. them. You know? I, I don't talk politics on social media. I don't, you know, I'm very careful at what I post at any given time. You cannot, there is a fear factor because you don't know who's going to attack you or okay. who's going to make a big deal out of nothing uh, on social media today. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy time. It, it feels like 50s McCarthyism. He said this, go get him. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, I made an innocuous comment the other day. I said, there are good and bad cops. I've had cops who are friends and family. There are good and bad cops. One guy went out of his mind. He went out of his mind, you know, because he, he disagreed. Yeah. So, you know, he feels they're all bad. So, you know, and you can't say anything without somebody being set off. Nope. There's two more things I wanted to bring up at least. And since we're on a topic of uh, censorship and just scandal or whatever the case is, John, back in the day, had his uh, radio show out of New York. And back in the late 80s, early 90s, you really saw some shit, whether it be Billy Graham coming out and speaking against the company, the steroid trial, Mel Phillips and Pat Patterson. And, you know, there was it seemed like a cluster is the way I'll put it of several different things. How was that for you being a part of the broadcast media, seeing all this shit hit the fan? Um, it really kind of took over my life for a few years in a lot of ways. I mean, when Billy Graham came on my show, Pro Wrestling Spotlight in uh, March of 1990 and talk about what steroids did to him as an individual and the fact that he, in his opinion, 90% of the guys were on steroids, um, that kind of opened up a lot of things, you know, then before you know it, there's um, uh, Saharian getting Dr. George Saharian, the ringside doctor for the state athletic commission of PA uh, supplying the steroids to the wrestlers. You know, there's an, a federal investigation. There's an indictment of Saharian. It goes into the steroid trials of, uh, of 91 with Saharian. And it goes into Vince McMahon having a press conference uh, to, to start a steroid policy, Hulk Hogan lying in Arsenio Hall. So it was, a, it was like a snowball effect that kept happening and kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and then it segued into the sexual allegations uh, that took place in uh, 92. And it was a mess. And it was horrible to cover and it was a dark period of the business. And uh, it literally was an ugly, ugly time for the business. And uh, uh, most recently with Tom Cole, who was the first uh, and most prominent individual to accuse uh, executives of the WWF of uh, impropriety and, and sexual abuse, killing himself. Uh, it brought back all these memories again because I was, I was deeply involved back then. And Tom Cole, who I hadn't spoke to in years, when I got back into wrestling not too long ago, reached out to me on Facebook and friended me and, and basically uh, said that I was one of the only people that really treated him with dignity and respect because I believed him. 
And I always believed him. And then he, uh, before you know it, I mean, he's listening to my podcast, he's commenting, and it was good to see that he was doing okay. But once Pat Patterson passed away, it took a turn for him. And, and uh, before you know it, I mean, he kills himself, you know? Um, I don't think Pat Patterson had uh, anything to do with any of the abuse. And I said that in my book, if uh, I kind of lumped Pat in back in the day, uh, and I don't know what he knew or didn't know or what he condoned or didn't condone, uh, but certainly Garvin and Phillips did wrong. And uh, uh, it was a horrible situation, to put it that way. You know, but uh, the thing is, with the scandals, the uh, the victims and the perpetrators are all dead. They're all gone now, really, if you look at it. Phillips is dead. Garvin is dead. Patterson is dead. Tom Cole is now dead. Uh, but the enablers are still in business. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, yeah. Those stories. Uh, Evan, do you have something uh, maybe a little more positive we could bring up before we wrap up? I want to, but before we do, I want to mention before I forget, as far as the book, Matt Memories, John is going to be making a trip from Nashville up to New York to do a signing on April 3rd. I'm in New York now, my friend. Oh, you are you? Okay, great. Yeah. So I'm in my New York apartment. Beautiful. Well, he won't be traveling, folks, but on April 3rd, anyway, he will be out at the Wrestling Universe signing copies of Matt Memories. Looking forward to that. That's going to be a good, that's my first one, first book signing. And I know that same day, IRS and uh, Ted DiBiase are going to be doing a signing there as well. So Greg the Hammer Valentine and Brutus Beefcake as well. So those four guys and myself. So it'll be interesting. It's going to be a fun day wrestling related. That's for sure. And Ted DiBiase and Greg Valentine are in 350 days. A film I was then a producer on. And we, uh, I I have a question for John that was bothering me earlier. Um, When, when you see, for example, the Undertaker charging $1,000 for a two-minute cameo or guys charging hundreds of dollars for autographs. Do you feel it's crossed the line into, you know, exploiting the fans or is it what the market will bear? Because, you know, your conventions were very blue-collar, affordable, you know. Um, yeah, you could get everybody's autograph for 20 bucks. Like everybody. Yeah, exactly. You know, you get in and yeah. So yeah, that was kind of crazy. You know, I underpriced uh, everything back then, but I did want it affordable. I wanted people to be able to say, all right, here's, you know, here's a few bucks and take a picture with Ric Flair, you know, but uh, to answer your question, I think um, uh, exploitation can only happen if you agree to the exploitation in a way, in this case, anyway, if someone's going to pay the undertaker a thousand dollars for a cameo or whatever that price may be, if you got the money and you want a video message from the undertaker, God bless you. I mean, if you can afford that, it's outrageous to me. Uh, the prices that you see from cameo. And I mean, it's, it's once again, going back to the whole culture, you have that three, four second, you know, that one minute interaction with somebody and you get to keep it on your phone and, I mean, what's going on with this new technology with NTFs? 
they're calling these things, these digital prints that you can own for thousands of dollars now. And it's not even a piece of artwork on the wall. It's a, it's a digital copy of something that yeah. something sold for $6 million. What, what oh. bothers me, you, you have a $5,000 WrestleMania package and the yeah. same fans wouldn't throw five bucks in a GoFundMe for some wrestler who's in dire need. That yeah. bothers me. That's the biggest problem. And that's one thing. I mean, you talk about good things, bad things. But I think in the wrestling business today, I, I really, and this is something I'm always going to advocate for. They're still independent contractors for the most part. There's no health insurance. There's no pension benefits. Uh, and there's so many guys that worked in the, you know, how many are left from the 80s or 70s? Hardly, hardly any. But the 90s, I mean, the guys have never been taken care of. The women wrestlers have never been taken care of. It is chew you up, spit you out, and don't care about your future. And that is the biggest travesty in wrestling is that there's no, and, and there's really the cauliflower alley does the best they can uh, helping people, but it's not enough money that they give these guys because they don't have the resources. So there needs to be an organization that literally can help these individuals in a significant way uh, because Vince McMahon is not doing it. There's been an endless trail of wrestlers who have died broke or yep. broken, yeah. you know, um, before their time. And uh, we've known many of them personally. And they, the, the idea that they all, quote, all blew it on wine, women, and song is absurd. Some of them never made big money, never. I, I was talking uh, to somebody that I'm really close with today, and I'm not going to mention a name, uh, but she was a prominent female performer in the business and uh, recently discovered she never made six figures in the WWE. Exactly. She made six figures. Then she had to pay for her own ring outfits. They I knew, them, she had to pay for them. I knew guys who headlined around the world, never broke a hundred grand. Yeah. Hey, John, I want to show uh, something. And obviously we're not, not going to say it publicly. That sounds like somebody's story. No, it probably happened to that person as well, but this was another individual that I was talking okay. about. Okay. But same thing, though. Same thing. Yeah, because I've heard similar stories from that person. That's why I... Yeah. But I want to go back to what something Evan said there about the $1,000 cameos and stuff like that. And it, a story that floored me, which I knew to be true, because it was confirmed by several people with it on both sides for and i don't like throwing companies under the bus but in this case i kind of got it with wwe there was a the name has been mentioned on this show but i'm not gonna call him out it's not the talent's fault where this particular talent was retired and was booked third party to do an appearance and long story short, they, uh, I said to the person who was promoting, I said, how much did a so-and-so cost you? He goes, 15 grand. Okay, you know, made sense for the talent that was booked. But I heard from the other side, from the corporate side, how much of that 15 would you say this talent saw? Good question. 
a small fraction of it. A third. Yeah, I think that's what happened even at my first convention, Evan, when I booked staying there. And we paid the office $5,000. We paid the office $5,000. So who knows what he got out of it? Because he got up and left in the middle of the thing when there was about 100 kids waiting to get his autograph. So uh, they weren't that transparent. Who knows what he received? But yeah, deals like that, you don't know what the performer's going to get and what the office is going to keep. Yeah, it's there, there's a certain amount of greed from the corporate side as well. So, you know. Well, absolutely. I, I have I have the hardest question anybody's ever asked, John. Oh, this should be good. So, John, you, you've had an interesting, interesting life, and I mean that sincerely. Um, you've worked in baseball, you've worked in music, you've worked in wrestling, etc. If if you had a choice, would you would you rather have a Grammy, a baseball hall of fame ring, or a, a WWE Hall of Fame ring? What, what, what would you most value? Um, here's what the answer to that question is going to be. My book, Matt Memories. I wanted to call it something different. I wanted to call it, I should have stayed in baseball. That was my working title for it. And my final paragraph in the book says, even though I've done these incredible things, and I only had a cup of coffee in baseball, that tasted the best to me. So there's your answer. Wow. Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, to wrap up, and I appreciate the time with both of you, Matt Memories you can get on Amazon and such. But as John had mentioned at the beginning here, he actually is taking direct orders to sign said book. So if people want to do that, how can they do so? Got a lot of these babies going out. Um, yeah. Get a signed and numbered. I, I limited it to 250 uh, signed and numbered copies of Matt Memories. And all you got to do to get one of those is just email me, john at mattmemories.com. Simple as that. I'll send you a link, uh, which goes directly to PayPal. And I sign it. I number it. I personalize it. And it goes out in the mail to you, john at mattmemories.com. And if you don't happen to be one of those 250 to because they're flying like cupcakes. If you happen to be in the Long Island or on Long Island, excuse me, in the New York area, make sure you go see John at Wrestling Universe on April 3rd. Yeah, that's the first one. And just a couple others. I just booked myself uh, April 24th in Rome, Georgia. It's called Superstar Wrestling Fest or something. And I'm going to be at that event. Uh, and I'm also going to be at the grand opening of another store in Tennessee on May the 1st with Dan Severin. So those are starting to come in. But the first one here in my hometown, man, is where I grew up. Wrestling Universe, Comac, New York, April the 3rd from 1 to 4 o'clock. And also because you mentioned it about emailing them to receive your and to purchase your book of Matt Memory, copy of Matt Memory, excuse me. Don't forget to search on social media because he does do a lot on of the streaming yard and the Facebook and, and, and stuff. And talk show i mean the weekly podcast with brian last pro wrestling spotlight then and now i mean that's uh if you want to if you want to go into a time capsule and go back 30 years and hear pro wrestling spotlight radio shows in chronological order that's the place to go pwspod.com john evan thank you so much thank you
Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, alright? I need help! E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my god! Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. You're naughty. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being keel or having extreme depression. Oh, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world, but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have signaturedhorror.com that's right signaturehorror.com hey it's Steve Austin you're listening to Crazy Train Radio and that's the bottom line <laughs> 